0: In the Republic, Plato's head-hanging portrait of Athenian democracy was both damning and prophetic. He argued that a society in which anyone could grow up to be a leader would be inherently unstable because it would systematically produce deficient rulers. Furthermore, Plato's critique went even deeper. He worried that the type of equality demanded by democracy, where everyone's given an equal say, regardless of their expertise would eventually lead to a society governed by passion, not reason. That democracy leads to mass ignorance and hysteria, which eventually leads to a society susceptible to demagoguery and ultimately to tyranny. We can see democracy has been corrupted by the increased polarization within and among nations. Nowhere is this division more profound than in American politics and the divide between liberals and conservatives. Partisanship and party loyalties have always been present in politics, but now they seem to be the main drivers of political behavior. The substance of a candidate doesn't really matter if party loyalties affect how people will vote, how they think about political issues, or even what kind of information they're willing to believe. This is one of the main concerns that Plato had. Conflict between different parties should exist. It's perfectly fine to disagree on issues like taxation, gun legislation, or even abortion, but gone are the days of reaching a consensus. Even on the issues where Americans tend to agree publicly, politicians have banded together to ensure that the opposite party can't pass meaningful legislation, and the public, instead of recognizing this and demanding more from constituents, goes to their sides and digs in. According to the Pew Research Center analysis of DW Nominate, which is a method of scaling lawmakers' ideological positions based on their roll call votes, it found three interesting facts from the information accessed on February eighteenth, two 2022. Number one, both parties have grown more ideologically cohesive since 1971 72. Two, both parties have moved further away from the ideological center. Since the early 1970s, Democrats on average have become somewhat more liberal, while Republicans on average have become much, much more conservative. I'm sure some people will love to hear that. Uh, Three, both congressional parties, geographic and demographic makeup has changed dramatically. Nearly half of House Republicans now come from southern states, while almost half of House Democrats are Black, Hispanic or Asian Pacific Islander. These findings make sense. The ideological gap between the two parties has developed in recent decades, and in the early 1970s, Congress had more than 160 moderate Democrats and Republicans. Today, there's only about two dozen. And it's also true, Democrats aren't the same party of Bill Clinton's new Democrats in the 90s. The former Arkansas governor had moved to the Center on Economic Policy, which at the time was a savvy political decision, being that most Americans were worried about pocketbook issues rather than culture wars at the time. He ran as tough on crime, and starting in the mid-90s, he advocated for welfare reform, signing the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act and the State Children's Health Insurance Program, and he also sponsored many financial deregulation measures. It's hard to see many of today's Democrats going along for that. By contrast, the Republican Party would have been entirely unrecognizable to President Richard Nixon, who won 49 states in 1972. Nixon was not only a fervent supporter of the Clean Air Act, the first federal law designed to control air pollution on a national level. He also gave us the Environmental Protection Agency. The creation of the EPA and that type of government expansion would face fierce opposition were it being debated today by House and Senate Republicans. OSHA was also another Nixon creation, again, also expanding the role of government. It's also true our legislators now tend to cluster at extreme ends of the regional ideological spectrum, making it even harder for us to find common ground on significant issues in America. Watching this unfold, Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler began his work in the late 1960s, investigating how forces, both constructive and especially destructive, operated in civilized societies. And he had a front row seat to watch this dynamic change in our political discourse. He had a call-in radio program, and in the early 90s, where he was once able to find some common ground or mutual respect with opinions that might vary from his own, He noticed the seismic shift that was beginning, and by the mid-1990s, as a man who studies societies, he understood the sinister undercurrent and unsuspecting actors coagulating together in what might ultimately unravel humanity itself. Andy began sounding the alarm in 2004, and hasn't stopped since. Today, in an episode titled The Dynamics of Polarization... Andy and I discuss the deep roots of polarization and the dark road we're on, but fear not. Andy reminds us: in the end, there have been plenty of dire situations for us before, and even some positive outcomes that we didn't see coming out of the darkness. So I hope you enjoy the Dr. Andrew Bard Schmukler with Jay Burke show and the dynamics of polarization. <laughs> Show My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Okay, I am happy to have back with us... Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler, a Ph.D. prize-winning author, former Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's very red Shenandoah Valley, former talk radio host, summa cum laude, graduate of Harvard University, Ph.D. awarded with distinction in a program specially created to accommodate his original theory explaining how civilizations have developed, and a frequent columnist in newspapers around the U.S. And you also may remember him from our two previous conversations, both in regard to the current state of American politics and how we got to this current political situation. The first part was called The Conservative Forces of Brokenness, and the second part was about the Three Defects Afflicting Liberal America. So Andy and I had some back and forth, and he had this great idea to kind of bookend those two episodes with one named "The Dynamics of Polarization." So I appreciate you pitching that idea because um, I think it's important, especially now with with all the news that's been coming out.
1: I just also want to add that you communicated to me that that those two those two parts of our conversation had triggered some some things you wanted to pursue, and, and yes. Yeah. And I I'm real open to finding out where that was. So whichever place you want to start, I'm ready to go with polarization or throw you the ball. And, uh, you know,
0: yeah, well, I think they they kind of go hand in hand with with the polarization, because that's where I'm really interested anyway. And I think the the viewers should be.
1: Okay, I'm ready to I'm so, ready to take that ball and run with it.
0: Sure. This is obviously, a, you were a radio show host in the '90s, correct?
1: Yeah, okay. in a conservative, rural area of uh, Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Okay. I was concerned back in the '90s at the polarization I saw going on in the country. As a sort of a preview, I, I, I want to talk about how disagreements became hostility, not two-way. The, the hostility was from the conservative side to the liberal side for, for a very long time. It's now mutual. And from hostility, it went to outright political warfare. I got a ringside seat to see it. In the 90s, I heard uh, Rush Limbaugh uh, poisoning the minds of, uh, of conservative America. And that inspired me to go... F- to go all out to see if I could get a, a radio platform. And by serendipity uh, that are good stories, but not not to go into for our purpose, uh, I got uh into the most powerful AAM station in the in the area with a host that wanted me to come back again and again, you know, on a regular basis and then got my own show. And I tried to create a, a kind of conversation that would fight against the polarization that I saw going on. And I would start my shows by saying, uh, let's talk to each other in a spirit of genuine inquiry and mutual respect. And I conceived of the two sides as they were polarizing, becoming half-truths on each side. And I said that wisdom lay in finding how those two half-truths can be put together in a way that doesn't just contradict themselves, but builds a more whole understanding. So that's what I sought to do. This is like starting in 1992. Bush was number one, was just finishing his term in office, got beat by Clinton, and then through all the Clinton years, and then the beginning of the W years. So for a decade, I engaged with the conservatives around here. And we found a way of making a community of discourse, which did succeed in some ways in building bridges but meanwhile i watched how the poisoning from the propagandists of the right gingrich limbaugh then fox news and then karl rove were transforming the people uh, that i had had a very positive relationship with really appreciated you know look it's not like there's only one good way to be a good human being uh, there's not only good one good uh, perspective to bring to one's life, to lead a good life. And I was appreciating the conservatives with their, with their, their Christian values and their, their patriotism and reverence for the constitution and mm-hmm. their emphasis on the importance of character.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I actually grew up in a pretty conservative household, my family. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there weren't, I wouldn't say Christian conservatives, but they were con- very conservative. Um, they were actually Democrats until Reagan. They they joined, I guess, the Reagan Revolution, like like so many did. But I always viewed my parents having more moderate views than. I, and parents. did you
1: see them as as fundamentally good people?
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I kind of grew up more conservative than. I would say liberal in some sense, um, I, you know, socially I was, I was more liberal, but I understood this idea of almost like a good steward, right? Like even with social programs, I don't really have a problem with them, but I can understand somebody coming in and saying like, well, shouldn't we just look at this, see if this is working? Are we putting too much money here? Something that would make sense, not just, can I jump in on that? Absolutely.
1: We had conversations uh, back then about issues, you know, like in ideas and principles and priorities where I disagreed with the people uh, around here often, but I also learned from them and I think they learned from me and that was, it was very gratifying. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I, I got to watch how this tsunami of propaganda was transforming them. I mean, it's a very disturbing thing to have seen for me. I have a piece that starts with a scene from Cabaret. I try to convey this without, without saying anything about the, you know, I have a weekly op-ed. So in the, in the, the newspapers of this red area, I, I wrote a piece that begins with the goose flesh one gets in a scene in Cabaret when this beautiful song being sung by this Bavarian, German, uh handsome lad, uh, it's just so sweet, and the people all around with their gemütlichkeit and, and their beers and the neighborly interactions. And then the camera pulls back, and, and suddenly you see the the swastika on the guy on this young, beautiful young man. I mean, he's he's still a soprano, basically, so he's very young. Well, I don't know, fourteen or something. But he's beautiful. He's got he's wearing a swastika. He's wearing a Hitler Youth uniform. And by the time the song is over. This thing that had begun as this lyric, beautiful German vision of, a, uh, of the stag in the forest. And I don't know how we're supposed to take the chorus about how uh, the tomorrow belongs to me. The, the, the song has turned into a, a Nazi anthem, a military piece of music where the people have come to their feet and the faces that were so smiley before are this snarling thing. And they're ready to visit upon the world the nightmare that was to come. So, I mean, there's a lot else in that piece that I wrote, but it was an indirect way of saying how disturbing it is to see good people Mm -hmm. who started out as normal Republicans, like the kind that I grew up with when Eisenhower was president and all the way through the first Bush, who were still that way when the poison hadn't seeped far enough down from the top. And and far enough into their consciousness, but ultimately they get to the point where you see them embracing a political party and a leader who is the opposite of all the values that I had appreciated in them. Yeah. And so I've I've been studying. You know, how the hell did that happen? I mean, there these are good people. Why are they embracing what I can make a great case should be called evil? These are intelligent people. I had conversations with them. I respected, you know, the minds I was interacting with, not all of them, but some of them. these intelligent people. How is it that they can believe the unbelievable? So I've written a lot of stuff to answer that. And, and, you know, it still boggles my mind. But in terms of polarization, I see two things going on. One is the dynamic of we had a power rising on the American right. That was determined to create an electorate that would support them while they did things that consistently made America worse. The force of brokenness worked to turn our disagreement about issues. We don't even talk about issues anymore. Well, we do now that, you know, the the Roe v. Wade has been overturned. You know, we've got an issue. It, It was turned into a kind of hostility that wasn't there before. My wife was driving along our area and she's got a Biden bumper sticker and a pickup truck past her. And the guy leaned out of the car far enough so that he could give her simultaneously the finger with both hands. Yeah. That captures something which has come up in these people. You know, yeah. it's it's like that that crowd in Bavaria stomping their feet. To, Tomorrow belongs to me.
0: Yeah, I feel that's... But, you know, I've talked about it, too, and it's there's a judgment now that I make when I see a Donald Trump sticker or something. I I make an assertion about that person, but I never I mean, maybe I did a little bit in the past, but not to a point where I don't think I made like a a judgment. I think now it's like an angry judgment that people make. And I try not to be that. they've
1: declared war. I mean, it's taken the other side, our side my side anyway
0: no i'm now i'm uh, I'm it's taken
1: us way too long to understand that there is a battle going on that is not at the usual level of american politics this force of brokenness has altogether taken over one of our two major parties when you get to that point i had seen myself as a bridge builder back in the 90s Uh, while i was doing that radio show i was going around Uh, to liberal America, um, delivering uh, sermons or platforms or talks at a university, which I called uh, usually something like beyond dispute, that the job that most needed to be done is not just to fight the people we don't agree with, but to enter into that kind of a dialogue. You know, that, that, that was the other side of my campaign against the polarization
0: yeah I don't know if it's something like you said somebody's a certain way and you have respect for them, but through propaganda, the needle's getting turned just a little bit more over a number of years. So for me, I started to change. I had a lot of issues with with bush forty three right yeah, yeah, that was w and the treatment of Obama, who I thought was very i thought he was a very fair president as far as what very he decent guy.
1: Yeah. Clueless about how to deal with the other side.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's you where know,
1: the, that's where the liberal America's failure in the polarization. I'm interrupting you and I apologize.
0: No, go ahead. It's fine. Okay.
1: There's another dynamic besides having these propagandists for whom creating wider and wider polarization fed directly into their strategy to get more power. But in addition to that, there's a dynamic that happens between people where they push each other further and further apart. And in an article I wrote in The Baltimore Sun in the mid-90s called The Dance of Polarization, I give some examples about my interaction with my mom when I'm driving and she's hyper-cautious and it would make me feel like driving more recklessly. Mm-hmm. And my interaction with my firstborn son who procrastinated too much, and our interaction would make him more of a procrastinator yeah. and make me more uptight in my, let's get the task done self you know, polarizing that way. Anyway, there's a way in which people can push each other into becoming Negative, like you know, the old uh, photographs that were done on you know actual film, where you have a, a negative and everything that's dark on the real picture is bright on the negative, and everything that's bright on the real picture comes out black on the negative. Yes, the right and the left polarizing or Democrats and Republicans. When I ran for Congress out here, there's a line that I use and I use it in my writings afterwards too. To indicate the nature of that kind of polarization, that we had a Republican Party that made a fight over everything, even when the good of the nation clearly required them to cooperate to find ways of moving the nation forward. And we have a Democratic Party that is unwilling to fight over anything, even when it has become clear that something is rising on the right that needs for them to rise up and fight it with the intensity and on the terms that that fight requires. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of polarization is, a. a I, I've, I've worked to, you know, I don't really know how much of it was like just manufactured by the propagandists and how much of it was just sort of like a dynamic, but w- there, there is stuff going on in the culture of liberal America that we talked about that has, you know, that is the opposite. The people on the right are continually fighting the battle of good against evil. Unfortunately, they mistake the evil for the good. Yeah. But meanwhile, the other side doesn't recognize that the battle between good and evil is sometimes the nature of the battle that needs to be fought. Yeah. And this is one of those extraordinary times. Just like FDR and uh, and Churchill back in the nineteen forties knew that they had they were they were up against something that needed to be defeated. We need that kind of spirit on our side going up against essentially the same kind of fascistic spirit i I fought against
0: i would also point out that roosevelt took on the court at one point in the in the 30s
1: yeah he also he also was an enormously powerful and popular president wow that's a big Uh, difference yeah you know i think if fdr were president now he would press the battle. He's the guy who said in a campaign speech about the, the malefactors of great wealth, yeah. and I welcome their hatred. You can't imagine a Democrat speaking no. that, that way right now, except for maybe, oh, maybe Bernie or maybe AOC. But, but um, you know, I, I, I kind of love Joe Biden. But he's not a man for this season. Naturally, it comes naturally to him as he can cooperate with other people who are willing to work with him in good faith. And he is going to get good things done like he did getting to all the Western allies together to confront Putin. That was a masterful Fantastic
0: job. job by
1: him. That was that was, think, the best job of American leadership on the world stage. I mean, uh, the first Bush leading up to the Gulf War was pretty impressive, too. Anyway, that's what he's good at. Yeah, He he makes cooperative relationships well, but he's up against something quite different. It's too late for that. And I used to have interactions about this polarization. I've been harping on this since 2004. You know, I got had a lot of confrontations with liberals who said, oh, you're just going to sink to their level, you know, we, oh, we should reach out to a, a hand across the aisle, et cetera, et cetera. And we still have Democrats who will sometimes say something, my friends across the aisle. I would present my credentials as the guy who built bridges. For a decade, you know, sometimes the circumstances change and you have to have more in your toolkit than just bridge building. Sometimes it's time to wage war. And I, it's been clear to me since 2004 that that was the case. And the Democrats are still having some difficulty getting their their passion, their outrage, their determination to win, their willingness to press the battle against a, fo- a force that's continually behaving indefensibly.
0: Do you think, this is going to sound terrible to say, but statistically speaking, do yeah. you think that the problem might be an education gap? In other words, if you look at college degrees and people who don't have them, there's a big difference between...
1: You mean in terms of the red and the blue uh, proportions? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. Are, it's are not they one thinking of the too much,
0: I mean, I guess the... Demo, like I said, I don't want it to sound terrible. But it,
1: it, it's, You're right, though. I mean, it's, you're obviously right. I mean, all the evidence is that, you know, that um, the Republicans have been, you know, getting some uh, less educated people who used to vote Democrat and they're and they're losing some of the Republicans who have more education and and are all that thirsty for fascism. But, you know, I don't think that's, you know, a fundamental truth about it, but it's not at all surprising. I mean, people being subject to propaganda, people I know could never believe Trump's big lie after he's lost 60-some court cases and all the recounts, all the investigations. You know, people who are educated are more likely to, to not be able to believe what's contradicted right in front of their eyes. But the basic thing is that we have a large part of the American electorate who have been led to a place where even though they came across as... Good conservative Americans, when I interact with them back in the 90s, have been transformed by polarizing processes into people who insist on fighting, aren't at all interested in contradictions, believe the lies of people who obviously don't care at all about their well-being.
0: Yeah. Well, so I was bringing up that point because I remember, I guess, when you were talking about the three defects in liberal America, that there is an issue with values. I guess you can almost be too smart sometimes for your own good. In other words, saying something like you were talking about where Auschwitz, you know, is
1: it's not what I would have done.
0: Yeah. Not what I would have done, but the Germans, you know, didn't know. It was right
1: for them because they thought it was right.
0: So in some ways, are they, is that side, the left thinking too much about how to confront this and the right just doesn't want to think about it at all. I, I, I feel like conservatives and Christians are just very they have a, a very forward way of thinking. And I don't mean in, in a it's in a bad way, but things are very black and white to a lot of Christians yeah. I know, right? It's good well, and evil.
1: I mean, all these things are very complex. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know, the, you know, we're, we can also talk about the spirit of the South because I live in the Confederacy here. Yeah. And the, and I wrote a piece that was published on Huffington Post back in 2014, that the spirit that drove us to civil war is back. And just yesterday I posted on Daily Kos a piece called A Dred Scott Decision for Our Times about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I show some parallels. So those things are, are, are definitely part of the picture you know I started talking about in 2005 I wrote a piece called The Concept of Evil which I also went around the country uh, giving talks about and the subtitle was why it is intellectually valid spiritually and politically important liberals have not believed that you could talk about anything that could reasonably be called evil if when i use that word it would get a lot of objection Simply because, well, like the Auschwitz quote you gave, the feeling was that questions of value are merely matters of opinion because they're subjective. There's a bunch of philosophical currents that were over the century, the last century or maybe less, that has fed the idea that if it isn't objective, it can't be real.
0: Yeah, I understand that thinking, but at the same time, there's a set of rules that people agree to as a society. I, I guess the Germans didn't, but humans well, in general would.
1: So I, I think that, you know, like the, the people in uh, in Christendom have a way of conceiving of evil because, you know, the tradition has been to imagine it in the form of a being, you know, the force of evil with the devil or Satan uh, at its core, so there's a way of conceiving how there might be some. I call it, my definition of evil is a coherent force that consistently spreads a pattern of brokenness, and I, I don't have a supernatural way of looking at that. But I'm trying to convey that there actually is something that can be seen in the world as a force operating much like the force of evil, and there's a way of seeing it that I labored to show. I don't know if you want to go there, but but in terms of polarization, we've got the people on the right who call people who disagree with them about abortion as baby killers and who imagine that the liberals are grooming kids to be abused by older men or whatever. I mean, these fantasies of evil, while they're supporting genuine things on the issues of, of guns, on the issue of climate change, on the issue of the survival of American democracy, they're distracted into these false battles. But they're very involved with good versus evil. And meanwhile, it's been very hard to get liberals to, to look at the force that I'm trying to show that actually should be understood in those terms because that's how it acts
0: yeah do you see liberals so uh, uh, there's a lot being lobbed at liberals for being almost fascist right like you'll see the the right come at them and say the grooming which drives me nuts because that's exactly what you're doing with abortion and all these other things you're you're grooming the next you're trying to groom a generation when you're saying did you see texas's republican platform at all
1: i wrote about it well actually i don't know if i wrote did it if it, anybody had tried, let's say, during uh, the 80s uh, on Saturday Night Live to present that as a parody. You wouldn't believe. People would think th- th- that was just so far off the wall that it's think, not even it's not even funny. I mean, it's just it's just such a, a an exaggeration of craziness.
0: That's you know, I think that's a big problem when I go back to like, talking about my parents or something like that. My father or mother would just blow something off. like this seems like it's getting a little going a little too far. Now nah, you're being nobody saw it. Right. Because they're like, well, that's and that's what I was talking about a little bit in that intro about being an alarmist is everybody calls everyone else an alarmist, but they're alarmed themselves
1: in some sort of way. So are they are they people who voted for Trump what, zero, one or two times?
0: I'm sure twice. <laughs> I, I got the sure. picture. I'm sure it was oh, you're talking about my parents or yeah, yeah. Uh, no, actually. So my mother passed away a few years ago, but she was a big Trump supporter. And she passed away right before COVID. My father actually voted for Biden because he's just like, I can't, it's it's too crazy.
1: But do you think your mom would have voted with Lives? With, yeah. He did?
0: Yeah, she was by, brainwashed. By
1: twenty twenty, she would have had it had she's, it. Within. By that point,
0: by the end, she went from very centered to developing that fox news mindset because she would watch that all the time she always loved politics but she loved she watched fox news
1: there's a genre of literature of people describing what happened to their loved ones when after when they started watching fox regularly paranoia fear hostility
0: yeah. So me and my wife are, are pretty much similar in our views and we'll always say when you just happen to, to get onto Fox news or, or something, or you hear something, they're very smart about the way they go about it. They do put little grains of truth. They just leave a lot of the rest of the truth out to, to make it look a certain way. So as you're watching it, you can almost sit there and say like, well, that that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, It drives me nuts because it's just all opinion. There's no, they shouldn't be called a news channel. It's an opinion show.
1: Well, it's not. not It's a propaganda channel. I mean, that's all it is. It it is a deliberate attempt to tell people things that they know are not true. I mean, we know that everybody at Fox needs to be vaccinated to work there.
0: Yes. And at the
1: same time, they're continually feeding their viewers all kinds of things to make them suspicious of basic public health measures that might help us contain the pandemic. Yeah. So I think that's proof, of course, that what they know and what they tell other people are very different. And this yeah. is not just there. They okay. they fired the guy who had the audacity to tell the truth that Arizona had been decided for for Biden. Yes. It made by uh, Trump really angry. They fired him. They're well, that was a, too. It, it's pure manipulation.
0: Any reasonable voice that would have been left there is gone. They got rid of anybody who had a little bit of reasoning. And now it's just it's Trump's network.
1: I, I'd, I'd like to tie up a, a little p- additional piece about the polarization thing. Sure. Uh, you know, I've indicated that I, I was a bridge builder back in the 90s. And I, I love that. That was a very meaningful experience for me. I'm a guy who has a yearning for uh, the world I live in to be one in which peace on earth and goodwill to men are the watchwords that characterize, you know, how people deal with each other. Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for, you know, it's a wonderful life. But there came a time when it wasn't time for building bridges anymore. It was time for fighting battles. And in terms of how do you deal with this polarization? Well, I do put out... An op ed piece into this area every week. Uh, And I'm always thinking about the people that I used to appreciate when when I put those things out there. But I don't know that I have any reason to believe that I'm reaching them. It's just doing what I know how to do. I mean, it's also true that if I was reaching them, they would never go public about that because heretics are not well treated on that side of the fence. But um, I think that. What really needs to be done in America right now is crystal clear, not to bridge across the polarization, but basically to fight it, fight the force on the other side, strip it of its power in whatever way it can be done best. While And while it's defeated just like American occupation of uh, post-Nazi Germany or of post-fascist uh, Japan, try to help the people who have been defeated to grow into something healthier. Because we need a healthy, constructive Republican Party that has some integrity, that cares about the nation, is committed to keeping the oath that they are required to take. You know, We need that kind of a party, but we're not going to get it by reaching out. We're only going to get it at this point because it is way far along in the process of when it's when this dark thing started taking over. We're thirty years into it, and we're not going to be able to bring it back without having the reins of power in our hands.
0: Yeah, you know, my only fear I ever I I try to think of ways we can heal that, and and this is kind of a part a problem of a, a two party system. It's like does the left do the Democrats almost turn into fascists themselves in some way? That's not a
1: danger. That is not a danger. You know, they're the party that doesn't make a fight over anything. Fascists always generate conflict. The Democratic Party is not the party that exacerbates racial hostilities. They're continually trying to bridge them. I mean- the spirit of fascism is the opposite of what the Democrats are representing now. The Democrats are the only people we have left who are defending American democracy. Uh, them and, and people like Liz Cheney who get kicked out of their party because they had the integrity to take their oath of office seriously.
0: It might be the wrong word. I'm using the wrong word. You're right. Fascism it means something different. Maybe they almost have to become... I'm picturing at some point almost like after the Civil War, where we had to occupy the South.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, and we that
0: went very badly. It, it didn't go badly until they withdrew from the South.
1: Well, though. Uh, let me just say that
0: I mean, it didn't go great. What, what,
1: but, what one would have hoped, Lincoln and the Union forces had won in April of 19, 1865. By the time you get to the late 1870s, it had been lost.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I don't know where the future is going to take us. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. You know, my bigger perspective on the world has got to do with will human civilization survive? I'm looking further out at a bigger picture because I think it's a toss up. That's really the core air level at which I, I do my thinking. Yeah. But there's no place on the planet right now where there's a battle going on where there's more at stake in terms of having an impact on that ultimate outcome for human civilization than the battle of whether this fascistic force that's threatening to impose minority rule against the will of the American people and overthrow the constitutional order in favor of an authoritarian regime. This is a really crucial battle in a very big war to determine how the human civilization ends up the whole world needs us to win this battle we should be fighting as if everything we hold sacred depends on it because that's not much of an exaggeration but that's the problem
0: with people sometimes is they're going to look at it like oh alarmists and it's like well for 20 years you've been watching stuff you like you said before about a saturday night live skit i've thought the same thing I watch Trump make these speeches, and I'm like, if I saw this in a movie, I would say, "This is totally unbelievable."
1: It's too much. You can imagine the American people electing a guy who's who's been recorded traveling along in a bus talking about how he abuses women because he's a star. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Even you know, interestingly, I I, want to point out something. It's been you know, it's disturbing that whole cabaret scene. Problem, the toxicity. The reservoir of it right now, it wasn't there in the 90s, but the reservoir is in the Republican base. We've seen twice how the Republican Party as a power system was ready to abandon Trump, but were pulled back because they were surprised that the Republican base said, no, he's our guy. Yeah, I mean, there is the uh, Hollywood access tape where some Republicans quickly jumped out and say, I can't support a guy like that. And then they had to eat their words shortly after because the polls indicated that the base was staying with them. And then after he attempts a coup d'etat, people like uh, McConnell and uh, McCarthy are sitting there talking publicly about, we got to, you know, this is not okay. This is not the American way. And then they find out that three quarters of the Republican base say, no, he's our guy. If you don't go with him, we'll go with him and we'll abandon the Republican party. So they capitulated.
0: But it's funny. They have a hold on power, but it's such a fragile hold. That's why they're... What's they're, the
1: fragile part?
0: Uh, I'm saying their, their hold on power, the Republicans, is very fragile.
1: Yeah. Wh- wh- where Where do you see the fragility? I mean, I'm saying...
0: Uh, uh, I think if Trump, you look at any poll in America... Is... Sorry. I think if you look at any poll in America, people probably don't know it, but they're more apt to be liberal than they are conservative if we had an electoral college that if we got rid of the electoral college we might not have these issues at all
1: yeah that 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 may be true but the thing is we aren't battling over issues anymore
0: no i i know the the war has moved to a whole
1: new level And, and and so the the level of hatred and you know insistence on conflict you know if i ran the zoo or to put it a different way what i would like to imagine FDR doing if he were sitting in the Oval Office and had access to the bully pulpit. He would go, he would press the battle by saying that this country is facing multiple crises and the choice to obstruct everything rather than find good ways of working together is absolutely indefensible. It shows that they care only about their own power and don't care about the well-being of the american people or about the the, uh, the how good the american future is going to be i mean it's palpable i mean it, it's proof there's no way that across the board uh, obstructionism the way the, the 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 senate uses the filibuster to kill things when when biden's putting forward proposals that you know 60 to 80% uh, of the people prefer you know i would be or i, or I can imagine I mean, I'd love to. I see how FDR would do it because he was so good at it. But, you know, I, I, if, if I had the bully pulpit, they wouldn't they wouldn't be spared a day of being called out for that absolutely indefensible course. That Come on, we got to cooperate. We're not here to get power for ourselves. We're here to serve the American people. And you're betraying the people who sent you here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll go back to the fragility. And I think what okay. what I meant, if they dumped Trump, that party splits in two. There's the Trump party and I'm going to call them the party of Mitch because McConnell has his minions that all those guys are his minions. And I think if they split, the Democrats are are the main party at that point.
1: I don't think Trump is necessary to hold that party together. I mean,
0: maybe not the, now. The, but... the,
1: well, that's when we are. Uh, the three quarters uh, of the Republican Party that has been supportive of the big lie—they have countenanced, you know, huge things that the Republicans are doing on a national basis. If our party were going around trying to rig voting rules and to disenfranchise uh, vulnerable Americans, I mean, we wouldn't sit for it. They're going to sit for it. I said about Trump when he when he surfaced that he was the same republican wolf i had been talking about since 2004 but without the sheep's clothing yeah so if trump were to fall and i think that the the, the um insurrection committee's hearings yes are doing grave damage to to trump i, I don't know how far it's going to go but they are scoring knockout punches uh, you know this i is, didn't
0: think they would I didn't think they would, but watching it, I mean, it's it's indefensible, and it's it's so many of his own people turning on him that at yeah. some point you, you got to think some kind of moderate people.
1: They've got all this testimony, always from Trump's own people, yeah, and from Republicans generally to make the case, and they're building the case in, in such a systematic way. I I had no idea it was such a coherent effort as it was. Yeah, big... I
0: have to be honest. It was it was much more coordinated in some way than I than I thought it was.
1: Well, you know, I I, I have a great admiration for a couple of the people. You know, like Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not and, and then the the beautiful uh, chairman, Thompson uh, who brings a presence of a kind into the picture. and then the uh, the job that uh, Liz Cheney is doing with her special status of the person who is willing to sacrifice her political career because she had integrity. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. but anyway, the Republican party is is pretty much what it is. Trump hijacked that party. It was already ready in 2015-16. That Republican base had been already fashioned into something so unthinkable as a a group of good conservative people who could take a look at a human monster like Donald Trump, who's the most broken person I've ever seen, Yes. And like what they saw and and think this is the guy we should hand the powers of the presidency to, even though he's shown that he abuses his power, even though he's shown he lies, even though he's shown that he's he's willing to foment violence. Just what you don't want in the Oval Office. That's what he was. And already the Republican base had become that. So they are not going to break into two. They are fully in the grip of this force of brokenness that isn't relying on Trump for anything more than his obsession with denying that he lost an election.
0: Yeah. My fear is not Donald Trump so much because I like the way you put it. He was he was the wolf, right? He, he didn't wear the sheep's clothing. He just yeah. was the wolf.
1: Yeah, right out there, <laughs> right where you could see the teeth.
0: The fear is a very smart person who understands Donald Trump has set something up, a precedent where he's figuring out how to try to undermine the system to break it. And there's much smarter men capable probably of that. Like DeSantis,
1: him. maybe that people say.
0: Right. Somebody like DeSantis or something.
1: Well, Trump is, I, I don't know. I mean, that's that I, I don't look forward to seeing how that works if 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 it comes to that. But you know, I, um given my being so involved since I was a kid in the life of the mind, you know, growing up with my parents and all that, you know, I've always uh, sort of tried to assess what kind of intelligence am I seeing here? You know, even when I watch somebody like a good carpenter, you know, that he understands stuff that I don't understand. I like to watch that. Yeah. Trump looks like, you know, an effing moron in so many ways, which is what you're, you're talking about. But there's something else going on in the picture. Uh, I'm just sort of uh, incomprehending of the there's been a genius at work, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could never achieve. You know, I'm, I'm a smart guy I mean, intellectually. You know, I'm not an effing moron, but I could never pull off what he keeps on pulling off.
0: Greatest con I mean, man in history.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, here's a guy who committed like a whole encyclopedia of impeachable <laughs> crimes and got away with it.
0: I know. I know.
1: Uh, he, he's a guy who, who found some way, which I also don't understand of connecting with the people I live among. Mm-hmm. So he can be just the opposite of what they say, but he has a hold on them. There's something in him that calls out to, to, to some part of them that is dictating how they conduct their political lives, even while they're still good neighbors and are good Christians when they go to church.
0: Yes, well, I know what you mean because it's almost unfair to call him stupid or a moron because he he did something that nobody else could do. Yeah, but
1: not everybody who wants to be president gets to be president. If if, if you've noticed, I I you know? <laughs> think he's.
0: I so I always said he wasn't a Republican. He was an opportunist. So well, he we, a Republican
1: something. is the party of opportunists now. Well,
0: that's what it is, yeah. But I yeah. mean, he he definitely exposed that. I mean, if you look at his track record, he he was whatever the issue needed to be when he needed to.
1: Yeah, he, I, I'm sh- I'm sure he wasn't concerned about innocent life uh, back when he was a New York, uh you know, thug uh, and real estate developer uh, in the 80s and 90s. And, yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, so I'm in I'm in New Jersey. I'm like a stone throw from New York City. So oh. I never. Liked him, he was always in the media. Yeah, here. yeah. I, mean, I always saw him as just this con man who
1: well, it's not had as no though, morals. it's not as though the, the fact that he's a con man is. I mean, you don't have to live near New York to pers- you should know that he was a con man. I mean, everybody should know what happened with Trump University, and you know, yeah, I, I, I don't understand what I see.
0: Yeah, well, you have to look at who he surrounded himself with too the lawyers and the Roy Cohn, was a Cohn? Roy Cohn was one Yeah, of the
1: yeah, one. right. McCarthy's right-hand guy. Yeah, back yeah. In the, yeah, all, all, the, all the figures of old evils coming together, including the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And Jews will not replace us.
0: Yeah, so uh, there's definitely a cognitive dissonance that's going through society. And I wonder, there might actually be another term for it, but do you think one of the things that's helping this polarization along is... I want to say there's a psychological term for this, but I don't know what it is off the top of my head. All right. So like I said, I grew up in a conservative household. The difference with me is I always ask why. Even when I agree with people, I ask them, why do you think that? I just want to know how their brain works, how it's ticking and why they get to that
1: point. So you were you, you developing the kinds of intellectual practices that would make it hard to put you into a trance i yes. sometimes talk about the present state in, in, in terms of trance or yep. uh, to put it differently to get you to believe things that were contradicted by uh, the evidence before your eyes you, you were developing something your parents didn't have to the same degree
0: uh, i would agree with that yeah but uh, your
1: father had it enough that by the time he got to two, tw- 2020 he had seen enough to say i can't go along with that
0: yeah well i think i think they were middle of the road people more. I mean at one point they were Democrats, right? So he was he was a union guy. That's why I always thought it was funny when he switched yeah, parties.
1: Yeah. But well, the, a lot of union people did make that.
0: Treatment. Well, now they did because they felt left behind or, or
1: Yeah. But well, though, though, you know, if you actually look at what the Democrats do in terms of serving the interests of of working people and what the Republicans do. However much the Democrats have fallen short in that respect compared to say the democratic party of uh, rose uh, fdr all the way up to you know when george meany was ahead of the afl cio yeah uh, the, the republicans shaft the re- working people all the time uh, i ran for office in virginia which is a right to work state and the right to work thing that the republicans put out is basically a lie uh, the truth of the matter is if you support us we will prevent Unions from developing, with the effect that even non-union people will be earning something like 11 percent less in yeah. our state. But they dress it up in this false language, and and that's part of how fascism continually works. Uh, you know, Goebbels talked about the big lie. Trump has got the big lie. But if you look at all the places where the Republicans stake their uh, their manipulative words, they're always about. Fooling people about what's really going on,
0: Uh, and especially in those areas, because, like you said, there's some disconnect because what the Republicans are offering wouldn't help that group in any way.
1: There are two priorities when they controlled everything, uh, the Republicans, and you know, if I had been there, yeah, they would have been denounced again. You know, they had two; they wanted to repeal uh, Obamacare, which would have impacted millions of people who had voted for them in a very unfortunate way and the other thing they wanted to do was to pass a big tax cut that transferred a couple trillion dollars to the billionaire class and to the corporate power uh, at the expense of average Americans and future generations yeah so what can be done you know i, I i'm i'm mystified how do you awaken people to the better angels of their nature after master propagandists have been working on them for 30 years without the, the, the democratic side fighting the fight with the intensity that's required. There's a line from uh, William Butler Yates uh, from the second coming that I've quoted I don't know how many times uh, uh, since uh, sometime in the Bush administration, the, the W administration. The good lack all convic- conviction while the evil are filled with a passionate intensity. And it's that mismatch that I've been trying to address by showing the nature of the battle.
0: So how do you think? No, that's, a, that's a tough question to answer. I don't don't mind you tough. Go.
1: I can always be evasive. I, I am a politician enough to have <laughs> run to, for, for for two years in, for Congress. So maybe yeah. I learned how. No, I'm not evasive.
0: Yeah, I feel like I'm getting groomed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be my chief of staff.
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> oh well, then I agree with everything you say. Yeah.
1: So what's this question that's not a? You no, know,
0: I think you kind of answered it before. You don't know what's going to happen, or we don't really know how to go about it. But I would think we have to get the next generation involved more, or more. You well, it'd be nice if there was not eighty-year-olds going to run for president. I guess. <laughs> And I don't mean that in it. <laughs> no, I know you. I don't mean that like that.
1: Well, but. I'm I'm 76, and you know I I get to see my friends. You know, uh, you know. I I don't like the to think of Biden having to hold that job for four more years. But anyway, go keep going.
0: No, I I just think you're going to have to wake up. Almost like we had a movement in the 60s, right? And then it feels like it got somewhere and then all of a sudden people decided it, it was too much in some ways this is going to sound strange, but let's, let's go back to the, Oh, I like strange. The, well, let's go back to the founders and I don't know if I can really convey this the right way, but somebody like Jefferson who has a lot of duality in his personality. And I, I, I recognize that, but he, he also, has
1: ideals, so, but he also had, uh, desires for him his own exactly well yeah.
0: yeah a very strange he's actually one of the most fascinating characters to me just because of that um somebody who could slam slavery and yet live off of he
1: recognized that it was uh, he recognized the corrosive moral effect it had on him and all the other masters
0: yeah yeah and he, didn't, uh,
1: he wasn't willing to give up the empire that he inherited
0: no that was that was that was part of it but he um he's almost he's got like a a romanticism at heart you know so like the difference between him and adams adams was more of a like a realist you know he wanted to use the federal government to kind of he he thought they would give in to their base behaviors i guess you could say right um he, he didn't trust them as much with government not that he he wanted to be an authoritarian but he he recognized a role for the federal government whereas jefferson wanted a society that was learned and was kind of like a beacon to to everyone else and i think sometimes even though he wasn't a federalist of course i think he would have recognized that we did something like the the movement in the 60s which was for all people i think he would have liked how that turned out i know that sounds strange being who he was
1: which one are you talking about now adams or jefferson uh, Well,
0: Jefferson. at this uh, point i think i think in being inclusive of all people because a lot of the 60s was he about
1: laid that. down the ideal that all men are created equal right and it was sitting there on the declaration of independence for abraham lincoln to pick it up and yeah. lay it down and say on this issue which is the issue on which the battle between good and evil in America is turns out to be hinging for now. On this issue, all men are created equal tells us which direction to go. And then the Confederate states secede. And Stevens, who becomes vice president, gives this famous cornerstone speech in which he says, no, our founders were wrong about that. All men are not equal. The Confederacy is founded on that great moral principle that the white man is superior to the black man and his subordination to the white man is his right and natural place. So that's an old battle and it runs parallel to what we're fighting now. And what I want to say in terms of the fighting is that we in liberal America can go to the movie theater and see a battle between good and evil and vicariously put ourselves into that place where our passions and our uh, 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 our heart and our gut and, and our our fist are are readied to like uh, uh, when Luke Skywalker de- destroys the uh, uh, the Death Star. We identify with that because it's good versus evil. It's really the same battle that we're fighting right now, and also in lord of the rings there's a force of evil that needs to be stopped and we have heroes who are not necessarily destroying the death star but who are destroying the source of much evil like frodo and the and another one is avatar where we again see a drama that's composed so that we get engaged in a fight against good and evil where, where the military industrial greedy system that's raping this beautiful planet gets stopped by our hero who who is brought there as a, you know, as an injured Marine. We identify with him fighting against that. Yeah. And, and they're all blockbusters. I can't help but think that it means that everybody in liberal America is primed to be engaged in a passionate way in the battle. If only they can see that what they're fighting.
0: So you're saying it's intuitive in us, but it's just getting the engagement or the passion for it.
1: My guess is that um, if we were to look at the whole way that that part of us gets shaped, that there'd be an evolutionary core to it. The things that are threats to what we love, uh, you know, that goes back to the saber tooth tiger days. (laughs) Um, Mm. But laid on top of it, uh there's been the development of the whole culture in which uh the way humankind fell had to do with eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's there at the very beginning, whereas I say in Hebrew, mm. there there uh we have been taught to see certain conflicts in those terms, and we respond to it in a visceral way. Partly for evolutionary reasons, partly because of cultural teachings. But we're prepared if people can be made to see that actually what we're fighting on the right, whether it be this extraordinary Supreme Court, this across the board obstructionist congressional Republican party, this assault on our elections, what we see is the same kind of thing that our heroes fought. The parallels could be articulated. It requires a certain amount of work. You know, I I wish that what I had to convey was something that I could just put on a bumper sticker. You know, I can come up with my, my, I ran for Congress on truth for a change. And this was 2011, 12, because my opponent was a typical Republican. He dealt all the time in lies. Yeah you know so some things fit on a bumper sticker but if it's important to perceive that at the heart of the human drama there is a visible dynamic which is reasonably called the battle between good and evil though it can be called other things if it's important to see that so that we will be able to transcend that the good lacks lack all conviction i can't make evil visible as easily as some priest talking about satan it takes more work than that i would be very happy to you know, in this or any other conversation to do some of that work because yes. i have a way to propose to see it having to do with tracing the the network of cause and effect as it operates in the world
0: now do you when you're tracing it are you tracing this throughout humanity
1: the way I would put it is um, something like okay, let's say we've got a a greedy man whose greed is having you know is is an issue. tracing cause and effect it means looking backward to say, what are the things in the world that led to this man being this way? I've been thinking about those kinds of problems you know for since I was in college, if not middle of high school. And then, you know, you can see, you know, things in child rearing, you can see things uh, in the economic system, you can see things in, well, there are a variety of kinds of things that can answer. Or let's say we have a war, you know, like Russia attacks Ukraine. That That's a very broken thing. It's, it, it returns civilization to a condition that we really want to get beyond a war of all against all. It's not a good. So if we wanted to exp- understand if we went back however far you know of course there's no one starting place but go back far enough to say how did this come about you would find there are a bunch of causes and you trace them and you would find that just as that thing like putin's invasion was a terrible brokenness in the world it was broken things in the world that generated it yeah you know uh, you know i've got a book uh, behind me uh called out of weakness healing the wounds that drive us to war which uh, traces the way human beings have been broken and how that brokenness feeds back into generating conflict in the world that's peering backward what caused this and then peering forward tracing cause and effect what were the effects of this You know, how did Trump get ever get elected? How did that happen? Oh man, it was unthinkable. Okay, this interesting answers. All right. And then Trump gets elected. And what are the how is the world different afterwards because he got elected? And the brokenness of his getting elected produces huge variety of forms of brokenness downriver. And this is this is sort of one of the ideas that's giving me goose flesh. I say that when you trace these things, when you trace the the way wars and injustice and enslavement and murder and cruelty and and trauma uh, all feed back uh, into one another, you can see that there's something moving through the human cultural system that spreads a pattern of brokenness that takes different forms. It moves through the human world in shape-shifting ways. But that makes visible that there is a force that consistently works to spread a pattern of brokenness, which is how I defined evil. You can see it the way you can see the wind in the swaying of the trees and the flapping of the clothes on the line. You might have guessed that I didn't just make up that line. It's, it's, it's one of the lines that, that speaks to me about what's visible If you look at how brokenness moves through the human system, and that helps to explain how we've got a power right now that's so destructive, that's so threatening to destroy so much more, that's taken over the the political right.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so... Gosh, that's a lot of work. (laughs) No, but I love it. I love uh, trying to think of it that way. We we
1: we can see a convergence there. For example, that's yeah. The the, uh, we can see a convergence of 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 brokenness. You know, like like white supremacy, and a whole region of the country uh, whose power and wealth derived from slavery. Yes, and that that generated white racism because it had every motivation to do so. Yes. And then that brokenness continues to ramify through American history in countless ways not just slavery but then Jim Crow and the lynchings and and now joining forces with the force of corporate greed and yeah. And whatever else is broken in people who have been, I mean, I, I, as I say, I, 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 it's hard for me to understand how this great crowd of Bavarians turned into these stomping Nazis. Yeah. There, you know, there's a lot going on, but what it shows is, there's a very, there's a visible, like the wind and the trees, force of brokenness that's working to break up the human world. And I would add, threatens whether human civilization will be able to survive. Well,
0: so I want to piggyback on that because I, I think that's interesting because I've always kind of said it this way. That force, let's say it's the wind through the trees, I don't think evil people, it's it's kind of like racism. People don't really think they're racist, right? They they think of racism as I hate black people and I don't want them near me. But <laughs> In There's their, plenty of that too. Like, like, well, there is that, but but that's that's an outlier. Most people aren't that out front with it, and they don't realize it that it's something corrosive inside of them, whether it's you view cultures in a certain way or yourself, you're not sitting there thinking out loud that I'm better than than that person. I don't think evil is usually out front that way. It's usually, no, but the for thing instance.
1: Is we we, we, we got to look at it in terms of brokenness.
0: Yeah, that's a good.
1: But because that that's so, you know, the people who we saw, well, especially here in Virginia, uh, when we elected a governor who uh, is proving most unfortunate, but it was all over the country. The Republicans were pushing this thing about our schools shouldn't be teaching critical race theory.
0: Yeah, it's all bullshit. Uh,
1: which, of course, they weren't.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, they were. I know. You
1: know. See, what I would say about you know the, the fact that people, a lot of people don't think they're racist. It, it's it it doesn't have evidentiary value in terms of whether they're racist or not because it's all part of the pattern in which the, the whole worldview gets built around lies, and in this case, the denial. I mean, it's just. I mean, I I, I continually marvel if they do they really believe that they're hasn't been a huge force of racism in american society over a long period of time i mean it's just so obvious
0: there's so much
1: I mean just the uh,
0: data alone would prove
1: everywhere you look there there, there are stories i mean whether like uh, there's a singer nat king cole when i was a kid you know and, and then yeah, i think you hear in the in that movie uh, that got best picture the green the green room that nat king cole got beat up badly performing in the South because he was performing white person's music. And then you see Jackie Robinson, you know, the movie 42 and, and the way he was treated and not just by that Philadelphia Phillies manager using the N word at him endlessly to razz him. It's just all over that black people have been treated abysmally, habitually, not continually by everybody got to do with the relationship with the truth versus the lie which is right at the heart of how evil works satan has been called a deceiver right uh, you know I, I've pointed out to my readers here that black parents feel compelled to give their sons especially the talk how to conduct yourself if a policeman pulls you over so you survive the encounter yeah uh, no white parent feels a need to give the talk it's It's simply factual, right? You know, we heard about it. It's a traditional thing for black parents to try to keep their kids alive in terms of the propensity of white law enforcement officers tending to kill blacks in an unjustifiable way.
0: I would say to the criminal system, the way it's set up, you could see analytically that it's set up in in such a way that it's for minorities. It's not fair treatment.
1: And going back to the age of Jim Crow, some of the states had had incarceration policies that were basically designed to be sources of free labor from a road. Yes. I mean, okay, All right. I mean, we we can't change that history. But you say, well, there are a lot of racists out there, but they would declare that they aren't racist. Big deal. They're the same people that claim that the election was stolen in spite of all the evidence. The, yeah, the, but, the truth versus the lie is one of the central battles
0: but it's how do you get people to recognize it? so i think another force of evil would be right corporatism there's a shield there private individuals seem to be cloaked by this corporate veil that results in this like the pursuit of a corporate mission and ignores the public good it just, like, allows the individuals responsible and the consumers to just throw up their hands and, and call it business as user, usual. I mean, so an example would be uh, the COVID vaccine that Big Pharma made, like, what, $100 billion on? The U.S. taxpayer funded a significant portion of that research into mRNA, mRNA vaccines through the NIH or... the for decades and after that and and that led to that accelerated development of the vaccines during the the COVID-19 pandemic and big pharma could distribute those vaccines most efficiently because you know that's not what the government's really set up to do and that's where enterprise and government come together really well but They just ignored third world countries because there's no profit there. Then you get these variants like Omicron, which I think came from South Africa. But, you know, they just use that corporate shield of, well, we have to maximize these profits for our stockholders. And and they don't and no individual takes the blame. So society decays. Can can
1: I give two responses? Uh Absolutely. Uh, if my seventy-six-year-old brain can hang on to both of them, well, I, I forgot. I've got a book, another book behind me called "The Illusion of Choice: How the Market Economy Shapes Our Destiny," and one of the chapters is about the corporate system. I don't think that the corporate system is used by uh, greedy people so much as it is designed to be a vehicle for the expression of the force of greed, because. Yeah. because uh, what you mentioned, you know their, their obligation to get maximum returns for their investors. So I, I have a chapter called Automatic pilot in that book where I propose um, that uh, a way of getting all of the values that are held by the stockholders to bear on socially important decisions, not just people's desire for and uh, return on their investment. To which is basically to say, they're greed. If we could change the corporate system in certain ways, we would take some power away from the force of greed. The other thing I wanted to say is that I've got a a piece of an answer about how did the Republican Party ever get to be like this? And if if it's okay if I uh, Go right ahead. That out. I know I'm talking a lot, and I don't That's I don't great. like people who talk too much. So I'm, you know. Uh, I'm your guest, so you brought me on here. to. That's your show, right? You know, so uh, I hope I'm making good judgments on those matters. Here's the idea. If you look at the uh, American political system from the the era after the the end of the Civil War to um, the mid-1960s, there were two major political parties. There were also two major forces of brokenness at work, making American society less just, more warped than it sh- than we ideally would want it to be. One of those forces was the force of white supremacy. The other force was the force of corporate greed. White supremacy was a force that gave us the Civil War. Uh, corporate greed didn't uh, because uh, it wasn't huge uh, until you know, the latter part of the 19th century. It got mightier than it had been. Yeah. The other thing is that between those those two political forces, one was housed in the Democratic Party, which had been the party of the slave power before the Civil War and was the party of Jim Crow after it was the party that uh, inhibited FDR and Harry Truman and people like that about how far could they go for racial justice. You know, it was the Democrats issue, how much of their uh, of what they could do would depend on continuing to please that force of brokenness. Meanwhile, the force of corporate greed owned the Republican Party, or at least a big part of it. There was decent parts of the American, of of the Republican Party, but there was also a part of the Republican Party that continued to uh, appoint chief justices that would keep on deciding things uh, so that the society was powerless to check corporate greed. Uh, and its ability to shape the American world, which eventually started giving way a little bit of Teddy Roosevelt, and then Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression, making major inroads into that. All right, the, the, they're on different political parties, and that meant that they could cancel each other out. The two parties marched to battle, and one side's fighting for one, and the other's fighting for the other, and, and they cancel each other out. Then LBJ, in 64, 65, passes civil rights legislation. And he says to the people uh, around him, uh, We're going to lose the South, which had been democratic, the solid democratic mm-hmm. South. We're going to lose the South for a generation because white supremacy is a very powerful force in the South, the white part of the South, which is the majority. And they were st- Greatly invested in the system of racial injustice that had been how that society was organized since the first slaves came over to in the 17th century. As soon as LBJ did that, and LBJ said that they were going to lose that, then a couple of years later we got Nixon with his Southern strategy. There are all these white supremacy forces that are not happy with the Democrats, and they are open to being wooed by the Republicans and the party of Lincoln becomes the party of segregation, Jim Crow, all those forces. And gradually, uh, by the 1990s, you know, with all the various Senator Shelby and Senator Thurman and all those people, there's a huge migration. And we have under the Republican Party, under one tent, what I think are the two most powerful forces of brokenness that we saw in America in the century before. And they are under one tent and they're in a position to form an alliance and they aren't gonna cancel each other out. They're gonna mac- maximize their collective amplitude. That strong alliance, plus the fecklessness of liberal America in going after the hearts and minds of the people who were being manipulated by the propagandistic force that had come out of that alliance, that led to a complete takeover of the Republican Party by what had previously been a a major force of brokenness, but not the dominant force of brokenness.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, I'm glad you expanded on that because you had mentioned, well, that's how we got to the two parts. Um, I do feel like economics is a huge piece of that puzzle because it, it does inhibit your your thought process. In other words, if you're struggling to make ends meet, you might not notice the evil that's taking place in front of you. Do you know, you know what I mean? Like I, I think there's there's a statistic that says you lose 16 IQ points when you're considered poor.
1: Well, can you get him back if, if you win the lottery? Do you, I don't you get, know. That's well, Is that's, it
0: overnight you
1: get more of those?
0: <laughs> but that's part of where I'm going is I if Democrats could do something. So if, if Joe Manchin didn't screw the Democrats over, because I, I think history might look at him and say, wow, he, he's the one who screwed us. He,
1: he, he will not have a valued, honorable place in history. He, yeah. He, I he, think- he will be worse than Aaron Burr.
0: Yeah, I think it, you know, if he would have let them get rid of the filibuster and actually pass some legislation that helped people, not take away money out of people's pockets like he did with the the child tax credit, which was cutting poverty, child poverty in half.
1: But wh- where were you? Where were you going with? I mean, I wanted to respond to this. Uh, oh yeah. So, thing. I, so what's the, what was the deal? I think
0: it's. I'm talking more about the economic forces and allowing that type of pressure on people. Where they don't have time to see what's going on in front of them, they're looking at right now. They're going to say the Democrats just talk; they don't get anything done, and I don't. And they're not going to see what the Republicans are doing.
1: I'd like to propose. I mean, I I mean, everything's very complicated. I'm not going to say you're not right. Let me let me say that what I see is as more central. I've studied uh, the 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 coming of the Civil War uh, with some intensity. I was a teacher of American history. 2002, 2004, then I saw how the spirit that that drove us to civil war uh, was back. And I still think that that's the case. I think that what's you can see what's going on as people being manipulated to betray their economic interest because of something the culture has already laid down as sort of a module that can be exploited. Now, let me give an example. The, The South seceded and fought a war To defend slavery. They've been lying about it since, you know, there's a great piece in the New York Review of 10 years ago by uh, um, James McPherson about how they started lying about this right after the war. But that's what it was about. They declared it at the time. The system, the polity was dominated by a small, powerful ruling elite of plantation owners and slaveholders. They wanted to defend that system. And lo and behold, they seceded and And launched a civil war in which white southerners fought and died in the hundreds of thousands, even though, in economic terms, the system of slavery was actually against their interests. The reason why the Irish are going to New York and Philadelphia and Boston and not to Atlanta or places like that was they didn't want to compete against free labor.
0: Chinese, too, right?
1: So, so we know. You know, people voted with their feet against slavery who, in order not to be in the position that the guys that fought and died to defend slavery were fighting and dying for. And one of the ways in which the the slaveholders did that was they they concocted a bunch of uh, things that would enlist people's passions, but really didn't have anything much to do with what was going on. They tried to convince people that... Those who are critical of slavery were offending the honor of the South. The whites, the poorer whites of the South were people who had been socialized to be able to plug into the idea of honor. There's a book by a guy named Wyatt Brown, something about honor and the politics of the pre-Civil War South or something like that. But it, it's, it's a, an ethic, you know, just as they, it goes along with the militaristic dimension of the Southern culture. So, they were they were people who could be manipulated with a concept like Southern uh, uh, to betraying their economic interests and serving the power and, and wealth interests of those who were manipulating them.
0: But do you think if it got turned around and people, if the Democrats passed some kind of legislation or numerous legislations that made their lives better? You think that they're too rooted in that what do you want to call it tradition or that ethic that they wouldn't change?
1: Well, you' you know you're, you take me back to where I keep on confessing to the, it sort of boggles my mind and don't I don't yeah. fully understand. I mean, I can say things uh, about it, but it's it seems to me that that culture gets transmitted at some very profound levels. That are not necessarily operating at the at the level of factualities and and uh, rationalities and you know like how you're supposed to feel about black people, you know I have a friend who 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 went to high school not far from here and who once stood up for uh, some black kid that was getting bullied in his high school and how the, the abuse he took as an N word lover. There are ways of transmitting very deep and subtle things. And and the culture of the South got shaped for a, more than two centuries by a culture that was dominated by slaveholders. And they got a chance to uh, install psychological uh, mechanisms and modules and patterns and, uh, you know, visceral reactions.
0: Education, their and, education and, systems built. And,
1: and way. ways of distracting people from seeing things. And, um, you know, I, I don't fully understand how it works, but I see that it works. Yeah. You know I see that Trump can make intelligent people stupid and good people support evil. I see it. Yeah. I've had a ringside seat to witness it. And I think that the culture of the South is something that really does not operate. It teaches people not to be able to see their own interests. The people who, who, who marched in pickets, march up Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg and were mowed down by, uh, by the uh, rifles and cannons of the North and the people who are now supporting The Republican party in Congress who is distracting them with all kinds of issues that don't have anything to do with how the plutocracy is stealing power from them and how, how it's stealing wealth from them and how it is showing blatant indifference to making things better for them. I I, I come back again to something like uh, the trance. I've studied the trance, but I don't understand that either. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody does, but you can get people so they form a blister. Because they think that the coin that's been put on their, on their skin uh, is hot. You can get them not to be able to see a human being right in front of them. Yeah. So there are ways of human beings being manipulated and, and there are, there are people who are very intelligent and are, who are sociopaths who know how to manipulate people. I don't think it's in the people I live among. I don't think it's in their interests economically or in any other way to be supporting who they're supporting.
0: It's it's such an interesting question. And then that, that makes me wonder regionally. So because I, I don't, like I said, I, I grew up, I'm like 20 minutes from New York City. I just have to go across the bridge. So I, I grew up very different place with a lot of different types of people. And it nothing bothers me because I've, I've grown up that way and I've been taught that
1: you mean there, people being different from one another? That doesn't matter. yeah. yeah.
0: It? Whether it's you know black or Hispanic or or anything, it, I don't really see it.
1: Well, you don't you don't notice it, or you don't? Well, uh, no, I mean I it.
0: notice. Yeah, I mean I, I notice people. I
1: like <laughs> noticing it myself because I think <laughs> culture is so interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I, not in that way. I guess I don't. I don't see it as this incursion to anything against me, though. A culture, you
1: know? yeah, part of the brokenness, the, you know, when the Nazis put the world through what the Nazis put them through, you know, there were people who uh, I think of uh, Eric Frome, who wrote uh, Escape from Freedom, mm-hmm. and Theodore Adorno, who with other people wrote the authoritarian personality, they were trying to figure out how did this happen? I mean, they were born into a society that wasn't so dark as it became. And so they had theories. And one of the things is that people who are brought up in certain ways are rendered vulnerable in a variety of ways to an evil leader. They have failed to integrate aspects of themselves very well. Yeah. So that kind of brokenness contributes to a willingness to embrace contradictions without noticing it. It also leads to projecting onto other people the things in themselves that they can't accept. So, I think that if you look at the culture that I'm enmeshed in here, which is a conservative, somewhat fundamentalist, traditionalist culture, they've got a vulnerability. They got the strengths of their vulnerability, but they also have the weaknesses that go with it. They are people who are socialized to to be loyal to the authority that they've embraced. From God said it, I believe it, and that settles it to whatever Donald Trump thinks.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or
1: what our Fuhrer has to say.
0: Well, it's like you said, I mean, I think especially from a religious sense, when you're taught to praise a being, it's probably very simple and to praise a human. You're looking up to someone, right? You're looking for a model for yourself. And, and I don't know why Donald Trump is a model, except that he's just a good con man to them. But well,
1: he's, he's more than that. I mean, he's yeah. cruel, too. and He's domineering and he's uh insulted. yeah but
0: they like that strength it's like the strength yeah, of god strong. you know he's
1: strong and he he never gives an inch yeah yeah and, and, you know what i envision is like like it you know, was a book called uh, uh for your own good by alice miller about uh, the upbringing of the generation that embraced the nazis and she goes back to point out basically the authoritarian uh child rearing practices uh, that were embedded in in German culture. I I don't think that book has been discredited, but I I found it very meaningful. And I think that I have enough experience of of the people, the culture around me to think that they are very oriented to following uh, the leader. Getting Democrats together has been described as like herding cats. Getting Republicans together is, you know, they got give is giving them marching orders. And that's really a virtue when it comes to those times when you've got a good leader, and they're loyal, they're willing to go all out. They fought in the Civil War. You know, they were impressive. And under when FDR was president, they, they fought for the good and helped defeat fascism. But they're also vulnerable to going over to the leaders who are possessed by a force of brokenness. And that's what's happened in America: uh, is that very clever people have channeled people who were, at some levels, very good people, like I experienced, but at other levels, were kind of not all that well put together because they they've been browbeaten into, you know, you, your parents apparently didn't insist that you subordinate your thinking to theirs. No. No, they didn't. No, but there are a lot of kids that grow up in places like this where they are co- compelled. Yeah. My son went to school uh, at the local uh, elementary school. It was a very good experience in, in a lot of ways. But you really don't need to legislate that if you go to the drinking fountain, you have exactly five seconds and then you got to stop. Yeah. That's carrying the uh, the rules too far. You know, you don't, yeah. you build people who for whom you face, you say jump. All they say is <laughs> ha high. You know, yeah, that, that's fine when you need to have people go through sp- basic training and come out brave soldiers willing to die and pickets charge. But it's not good Did that when they're seduced by an evil power.
0: That's partly a human. Uh, well, I guess more an American story It might be a human story, but education's another one, because that's where you're kind of taught to respect authority in some yeah. way. Right. Yeah. So,
1: Like play Simon says, you know, you got to listen You got to listen to find out. Well, if Simon doesn't say it, I should ignore it. Yeah. But if the Simon authority says it, I got to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I always thought school, I mean, I think the original idea was to teach you how to think. And then somehow it became what it is now, which you know drives me nuts. But I mean, I would know how to correct that. But I just, I think the the education systems, I never liked it. (laughs) I'll put it that way. I never liked the way it was set up.
1: Well, I I was very critical of it. You know, in my 20s, uh, you know, Mm. my my focus was on all the ways in which the America that I grew up in was less than the ideal that I thought we should be and less what I thought we needed to be in order for to have a more humane and viable civilization. You know, but now I look back at that flawed America and I think it it looks pretty good from here. It looks okay. (laughs) Yeah, you know, as a young man, I was you know I was pointing toward the ideal, you know, you know, and I know there was plenty wrong in that you know America I grew up in. I haven't forgotten that stuff, but geez, unable to do something about climate change. I mean, Eisenhower wouldn't have done that; It wouldn't have been like that.
0: Uh, the first Bush was kind of attacking. They weren't calling it climate change, but he went after the uh, the environment. The first Bush worked with the Democrats
1: yeah they, they, they at least they at least sent us a, a delegation to the to the Rio conference. yeah, but back then I was still critical that we weren't better and I, I wrote a piece that was in the Christian Science Monitor called uh, uh, manhood and the Fate of the Earth, uh, contrasting how how much more readily Americans will spend a fortune to defend themselves against external enemies rather than but but we consider it uh, wimpy stuff to control ourselves so that we don't bring a climate catastrophe uh, down upon us. So, you know, we weren't as good as I thought we should be, but it's not like, you know, the Supreme court, as we speak, I'm afraid that the Supreme court is about to strip uh, either the executive or Congress uh, from the ability to deal with climate change. At least that's what I read in the papers. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like their consistency about doing exactly the wrong thing. It's, you know, it's incredible. I mean, but
0: they're, they're at odds with their own decisions to me. Right. So the, the New York gun law part yeah, of what they're New hypocrites. York, is
1: that what you mean? Yeah. But,
0: well, because part of the abortion, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade rollout was like, well, we're just kicking it back to the states because that's yeah. what we think should be
1: happening. Okay, why the can't New York the, uh, have right. their gun law? Yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it's I, I don't know. I, I've got in my mind. I've always loved the Supreme Court. Uh,
0: Yeah, me too.
1: My favorite lecture course, I mean, my favorite course at all, college was a Gov 124 about the history of the Constitution taught by the guy who wrote the book. He was just great. And I loved following it. And and this was 1964 or five. And so, you know, a lot of progress had been made on a lot of things, you know, like everybody gets a lawyer and one man, one vote and uh, Brown versus the board and all that stuff. I Mm -hmm. loved it. But I think that along with the Republican Party having become something unprecedented in American history, and I, I really believe that this is quite unprecedented, they have succeeded in giving us a court that is unprecedented in its nature, mm-hmm. or or maybe maybe in the 1850s, I don't know enough about the whole picture of what happened in the 1850s. I know Dred Scott.
0: I feel like that's more singular issue though. This is- Yeah, but the, but that issue was what
1: the whole South was organized around. So it may have been- It's true. It's the one it, issue. It, 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 it may have been sort of equally partisan, even yeah. if it wasn't expressed. It was maybe a, a Supreme Court that was just an instrument of the slave power. I, yeah. I don't know enough to say. It looks like it with that decision. But this court- looks to me like something we've never seen before, in terms of it simply being an instrument of the Republican agenda. I agree. Yeah, if they can point to me a place where the interests of the Republican Party were different from what they decided, I would acknowledge that uh, uh, it's not as true as I think it is. Yeah, it looks very true to me. And I'm very concerned I mean, I've, I've asked a few people I know, like lawyers who are friends and that I talk to about such matters. And so far, everybody says, we just got to tough it out for what, 30 years? 30 years. <laughs> a- Amy Comey retires, or is that 50 years? Anyway, I, I, I they tell me there's nothing to be done about it, but I, I don't accept. It. Maybe I will eventually. But I, I like to ask right now, Adam Schiff and Jamie Raskin, two very impressive Legal constitutional minds that are on the insurrection committee and who each had led one of the impeachment processes, and who I think are brilliant and good people. And I know that I've seen words from them that they are aware of the problem. I'd like to know if one of them were to ask us what they should do about this, what would be the best advice? What could they do that could make a difference? Because I do not want to accept what this party has become between what Justice Thomas and his wife have shown. Oh my God. And the complete contradiction uh, between the gun decision and the and the abortion decision, and the snarling, aggressive, hostile, contemptuous way that Alito delivered. Uh, his overturning of a of a right indifferent to the human lives. I mean, there are all kinds of ways you might have overturned Roe v. Wade. But his particular way is that of a, an autocrat, a, a theocrat, a man who is eager to uh, stick it to the unbelievers. Um, there's something ugly there that needs to be fought, and I don't know what the best way to fight it would be.
0: Well, my concern with packing the court, which I actually think, I think there's 13 district courts, so I don't know why we don't have 13 judges. Aren't
1: there only nine?
0: There's nine, but there's...
1: Or court of appeals?
0: Yeah, I think there's 13, though. Until I'll have to double check, that. Yeah. But well, I, I, I think the, you're right. There's nine.
1: The San Francisco is where the ninth meets or something. Yeah, like
0: that. yeah. And
1: I think but, that, I, that's the highest level before you get to the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think there's four... I don't know. That's not my topic, I guess. But uh, I know they talk about packing the court, but I'm scared then when Republicans have power, they can just either take away, ju- uh, they could just pack it. Be, yeah. Repack it? Yeah. I mean, we could have 20 justices. Well,
1: we we got to keep this Republican well, Party from having power.
0: Well, that, that's the big thing.
1: We just have to. I mean, we, we shouldn't plan for, ye what bad things might they do if they get well, power?
0: I wonder, I wonder if there's a way to put, It'd be nice if the Supreme Court, first of all, had a term limit of like 20 years.
1: Well, if people propose 18.
0: Right. Something like that. Yeah. yeah then that
1: we was... wouldn't have to wait for her to become an old lady.
0: Yeah. Well, can you... <laughs> it would go through the ringer, but can you put an age limit? I mean, there's an age limit to being a senator right as far as no, there is what age no, you isn't. have to be to run to become a senator
1: yeah but well, a minimum age there, there, there's got a minimum a, there age
0: is, yeah there's no. there isn't
1: a maximum age yeah i mean speaking of strom Thurmond, i think he was about a hundred while this when the, when senile as he was he continued to he, occupy that seat
0: i couldn't believe he was still in the seat when did he die in the 80s or the 90s i was like that man i think that's man in, it's in office still
1: and, and, and speaking of hypocrisy, and then it turns out that he's got a black child.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: the guy who the guy who yeah. who walked out of the Democratic segregation Party.
0: Now, segregation, uh, that, that's him, right? For no, I, I think that's remember.
1: George Wallace. Um,
0: oh, I'm thinking of Wallace. That's right.
1: Yeah. But but, but uh, Strom Thurmond led the uh, Dixiecrats.
0: Uh, that's uh, right.
1: Against Truman in 48 and almost almost cost him the presidency. But he won. Strom Thurmond was a hypocrite. Yeah. Is that the the lack of integrity as it continually shows up should be seen as a form of brokenness which is endemic to what the Republican party has become including the fact that it is only the Demo- only the republicans who have shown integrity that the party will kick out
0: yeah i'm going to ask you a question I'm, I'm going to wrap it up because we're coming up on two hours, but you can always come back. So I always will have questions for you.
1: You, you can um, always have me back. I'm I, I'm on am on a mission.
0: Okay. Well, we will we will definitely have you back. So, my question is: In your studies of societies or civilizations, yeah, do you see us on the path of a certain one, or are we unique?
1: Do I see us on the path of what was that word?
0: Uh, of a of a certain civilization. In other words, like how maybe Rome fell, or how the Nazis became well, th- the Nazis.
1: I think the issue right now is a global one. Uh, I mean, within that, of course, there are, you know every country's got its own dynamic that's operating you know like what is china going to be like in 50 years mm-hmm. what is russia going to be like in 50 years you know what is brazil going to be like in 50 years what of course is the united states going to be like in 50 years and i follow uh not only american politics closely but also uh, the uk and israel and both of those countries have had significant problems with their democracy but the fundamental issue is Will we be able to order our civilization? By I don't mean American human civilization on this planet. Now that we have the power to destroy ourselves, which we didn't have, you know, the, the oldest people now were born at a, it wasn't, and it never have ever been an issue that people had to envision. You know, the Manhattan Project during World War II opened a door, which showed that we actually might destroy ourselves through a nuclear holocaust. And we now have seen since the World War II that we have become such a big bull in the biospheric China shop that we could bring the whole thing down upon us without any nuclear weapons, but just by destroying the natural, the flows of the rest of the living system on which we depend for our survival. So that's the level at which I think we need to be focusing more energy. Now, for that purpose, we also need to deal with the American crisis And we need to deal with the uh, Ukraine-Russian crisis. And we need to deal with, you know, lots of other stuff, but, uh, you know, like the destruction of the Amazon. And, you know, we don't need a guy like Bolsonaro, you know, Mm -hmm. being in charge of something, you know, that our grandchildren may suffer significantly because of the nature of the man in charge of Brazil. So we got a lot of things. But uh, I I say that the real issue we have come to is that we now have the ability to destroy ourselves, and we need to focus our attention on what do we need to do, what do we need to become ultimately in order to prevent that self-destruction in the future? Which I don't know how far out that future goes, but I like to think of a couple centuries. Some people think I'm being optimistic to think we've got. How do we need to order this uh, our civilization so that something like the Cuban Missile Crisis? doesn't keep recurring, which would be the equivalent of playing Russian roulette. And if you keep on playing Russian roulette long enough, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. What can happen, will happen. You're done. Yeah. And how do we order our civilization so that we can go on for the long haul with the biosphere thriving and human beings thriving? Because if we don't manage to do those things, eventually these powers that we're developing that continue to grow are going to destroy us. Yeah. So I think that we need to fight the American fight, but we need to fight it with the long view in mind as well, because this is one of the arenas in which it's being fought right now. We used to be called the leader of the free world, and Biden showed that we could regain that with a skillful enough president. Mm-hmm. But with Trump, and we might become that again. And what What are the effects of, if we don't have a leader of the free world, if we hadn't had it in the post-World War II era, what progress we made in ordering the world such as it was, I think some important things. It all seemed to depend on some kind of American leadership, just like the response to the Ukraine thing required American leadership, at least as far as I can see. I think that we need to have What they called, what Madeleine Albright called the world's indispensable nation, continue to be able to provide some decent leadership role. I think it's a toss-up whether we're going to destroy ourselves in the not-so-distant future, meaning a couple centuries. And I think that if America goes bad, the chances of our coming out on the right side of that toss-up go down.
0: I would agree. Because we're like the, we're the great equalizer in a lot of these situations.
1: Well we have ideals. Well, first yeah. of all, we're powerful. you know there are a lot of decent societies around. I mean, I like the Scandinavian countries and yeah, you know, everybody's favorite uh, you know whatevers. But they're not I mean power matters. A lot yeah. of this is about power. You know power is continually to be found at the core of the thing. So lovely little Denmark. If they had our power, maybe they would use it masterfully. Who knows? Yeah. But they don't have that power. You know, it's the United States, at least it has been. We're in a struggle for power. Civilization emerges into a situation in which the struggle for power is at the heart of what's been the problem in civilization. So power is still important. The power of the Democrats to keep the Republican Party at bay and the power of the best societies harnessing the best of their energies to make a society, a world that can survive for the long haul. It is a struggle for power. And in America, power and the ability to fight going back to polarization got divided. Yeah, we got one party that had the ability to fight really well but yeah. completely morally bankrupt. And we had another party that was really pretty decent and was happy to fight for the good things, but I didn't have a clue how the fight needed to be fought or even what they were fighting against.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess time's going to tell, but I don't know. I'm kind of like you. I don't know how optimistic I am at this point.
1: Yeah. You know, optimism is a funny thing. I find it very painful to worry about the fate of human civilization. I'm writing a piece right now called the fate of human civilization. I just got a niche to, uh, on three quarks daily to post essays uh, mm-hmm. every four weeks. And I'm taking it as a, a challenge to create something that will convey that. And the first piece is in process called the fate of civilization. I don't know how, how, um, uh, worried to be, but I do have the experience that we don't know enough ever to give up. Yeah. Uh, I I had a job once that had to do with how the Cold War might be settled without the nuclear holocaust. Uh, I was supposed to go around the country and interview the best minds and, and, and like that. And I'll tell you, neither the people in the Reagan administration, nor the people in the think tanks, nor the professors at the universities that I talked to had any notion that there was a real possibility that the Cold War might be over in seven or eight years. Yeah. They didn't see it coming. Didn't see that there was a possibility that apartheid might end in South Africa without the metaphor that was being used back in the early 80s was the impossibility of getting off a a dismounting tiger that you're riding. But they happened. So it it has impressed upon me that the forces at work in the world are beyond our ken to be able to assess where something's going to come from and what's going to end up prevailing. Yeah. We just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, who knew that because some woman accidentally misdesigned the ballot in Palm Beach, Florida in 2000, we were going to get a terrible botched war in Iraq. The, yeah, If causes and effects can create something like that, we're way over our heads.
0: That's true. That's true. You can So
1: I, I I go with what the religions say, which is basically, be not afraid. Hope is better than despair. Um, I don't know about prayers being answered, but you know I'm not. I I don't have a whole lot of that in my um worldview. But I I won't deny that sometimes I pray for outcomes. Just because I want them so much, and I want yeah. somebody to be listening, yeah. So I, I think that it is part of our spiritual and moral responsibility to act from hope, uh, even though that sometimes takes some doing.
0: Yeah, but optimism is kind of a, a feeling in some way, and so is so is any kind of negative feeling, and that can all change with one.
1: Who would have thought that uh, that that lo- that little band of of Jedi uh, people could have could have tackled the the, the Emperor and the and the, the Empire yeah. and, and the Death Star? I mean, who would have thought? But if the force thought. is with you, yeah, and there is there is a force that I mean, this the other thing I'd be happy to talk with you about is that the spiritual dimension of things is real. In, yeah. in a certain way that I can sort of define in an evolutionary I perspective, I, I would love to go there with you. But in any event, it is real that we have been crafted by a process which continually selected what lives over what dies to experience the reality of value and the reality of breaking through to a spiritual dimension where you feel inspired to accomplish things that you might not otherwise be able to accomplish because of that inspiration. Yeah. Like Nelson Mandela was a figure that allowed them to get off the tiger without getting swallowed.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, I uh, thank you for coming by and talking to me for uh it was uh, great to pick your brain a little bit. And uh, like you said, we could do it again in the future. I would definitely love to talk about the, the spiritual elements you were just talking about.
1: Too. Oh, I'd love that too. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks for giving, giving me uh, this opportunity.
0: And you're welcome. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen The With Jay Burke Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go directly to jayburkshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape the while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.